guide to art, activism, and culture. I'm your host, Soy Elena. This podcast is brought to you by the Aerogram Center for Arts and Culture, bringing the voices of today's creativity to you. Before we begin, please consider donating by going to our website at www.aerogram.org support. Your contributions are why our events and programs like these are possible with no paywall so that everyone can participate for free worldwide. Thank you. Today's topic, on our own terms. Joining me is Puerto Rican artist Miguel Luciano. Miguel's work explores themes of history, popular culture, and social justice through painting, sculpture, and socially engaged public art projects. His work has been exhibited nationally and internationally, has been the recipient of numerous grants and awards, and his work is featured in permanent collections. Miguel was an inaugural Artist-in-Residence in the Metropolitan Museum of Arts Civic Practice Partnership Artist-in-Residency Program from 2018 to 2021, and is currently a faculty member at the School of Visual Arts and Yale University School of Art. Thank you, Miguel, for joining me. I'm really excited to be featuring you on the Aerogram Center's podcast. Can you introduce yourself? Uh, sure. Thanks for having me, Zoe. Um, my name is Miguel Luciano, and I'm a visual artist based here in New York. Yes. And we're specifically talking about your art residency that you completed at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. I wanted to reach out to you and include you because you have this interesting collaboration with the recent Art of Mar exhibition that was hosted in the summer. And our previous episode featured museum professional and archaeologist James Stoyle, who shares the behind the scenes of their curatorial research and practice on the exhibition. How did you come to the residency program and what were some of the themes and goals you wanted to explore? The residency program was sort of a, an experiment. We were kind of in the kind of pilot program phase of the residency. Um, it was initiated under the leadership of Sandra Jackson Dumont, who was the director of education at the Met at that time. And it was um, part of a larger project called the Civic Practice Partnership. And the Civic Practice Partnership was a collective of organizations in New York that were brought together. The Met was the convener and had received some uh, funding to, to think about how the museum could reach out to underserved communities, right? How um, social justice as a focus could lead that kind of programming. And so they organized this collective of organizations, large and small, to be in kind of a think tank together. Rashida Bumbre and myself were the inaugural artists in that project. And we were invited then to think about the museum as um, a resource, right? How can we partner with the museum in the work that we do in our own community? So all of the artists that were invited eventually into this residency space were artists that have community-based practices whose work connects directly to their own communities. And the communities that we live in and, and connect with are often communities that are marginalized from the institution and from most institutions. And so, and that was kind of the idea coming in. In the beginning, we were really just trying to understand the institution, right? It's history, how to navigate, you know, this institution, because it's, it's enormous. I mean, it's, a, it's like many institutions within an institution in some ways. So for me, where I started was really looking at where's, where's Puerto Rico at the Met? You know, where is my culture and history represented? You know, I'm from Puerto Rico originally. I live in East Harlem and, you know, an historically Puerto Rican neighborhood. You know, I was looking at both uh, where, you know, where's Puerto Rico been at the Met? 
in the past. Where are we now? What's the history of the relationship between the community I live in, in El Barrio and East Harlem and the Met? And, and so that's, that was kind of my starting point. And where that took me was to 1973 and the very first uh, and, and only exhibition about Puerto Rico or Puerto Rican art at the Met was this really incredible exhibition called the Art Heritage of Puerto Rico. And it was a collaborative exhibition between El Museo del Barrio and the Met. You know, El Museo was founded in 69. This exhibition happens in 73 and El Museo was really kind of the leader in proposing and shaping this exhibition with the Met. And it's a fascinating history. El Museo at the time was uh, led by Marta Morena Vega as the director. They were located in a storefront gallery on 3rd Avenue between 106 and 107th, very modest space. There were a couple of conjoined storefronts that was uh, at the time, the museum that was very community based, you know, so it's a it's a it's a remarkable story in the sense that they were able to bring artwork from Puerto Rico, some of the most important art historical works, in fact, to New York for the first time. And it combined everything from uh, Daino art artifacts and artworks to contemporary work by artists in the 70s. It was a large survey of work covering a huge span of history. It opened first at Museo del Barrio, that was also part of the demand, and was first made available to our community. And after its opening, was it was open for a month or two, and, and then it travels to the Met, a few blocks south, uh, where it opens as a larger exhibition there. You know, they did a catalog, it, it was bilingual, the catalog, the exhibition text was bilingual. There were all these really incredible kind of progressive things that happened in this moment. This is kind of before my time though, but it does influence a whole generation of New Yorican artists who are coming of age in New York at that time. So it was really, really important as a history. And so I interviewed and talked to the people that were involved in it, who helped uh, create that exhibition, people who attended the exhibition. And, and that was kind of a part of my early research and trying to find, you know, the original catalogs and images of the show and, and, and to ask the questions, what happened afterwards, right? You know, what happened after all of that exchange? The, the kind of sad answer to that is that not a lot happened afterwards. There, there wasn't continued relationships that didn't lead to major acquisitions it didn't lead to future exhibition opportunities for Puerto Rican artists. You know, they're, they're Puerto Rican artists and Latinx artists in general are very underrepresented at the Met. So it opened up a lot of questions without providing a lot of answers that were and that. You know, that was you know, part of what I was researching is kind of like, you know, unpacking that history. And 50 years later, almost, you know, asking the questions of, you know, what what can be done now? Right. And, uh, you know, how does this history move forward today? So that was one of my starting points. And in looking for like, you know, what is in the collection at the Met? Where is Puerto Rican art at the Met? And there are some works by uh, a few contemporary artists. There, there are works by Juan Sanchez in the collection. There um, are uh, paintings by uh, Rafael Ferre. There's there are a couple of things there, not a lot, and some historic uh, works on paper by Puerto Rican artists and printmakers, Tufino, Omar, and others. But almost all of that work has been in storage forever. It's never been exhibited. You know, I was cataloging and documenting what I could find, but also, you know, learning that that work has just been in storage forever. So again, there were disappointing histories, you know, meanwhile, if you go to the museum today and try to find something from Puerto Rico on view, what you will find are some Taino artifacts, 
so the, you know, the galleries of ancient Americas are closed right now for renovation, but while I was there, they were, they were open. And so you could find a couple of artifacts from Puerto Rico, small artworks, Taino artworks in the uh, uh, ancient Americas collection in a small vitrine about the Caribbean. And then if you go to musical instruments on the opposite end of the museum in a kind of little known gallery, you'll find other objects. There's, there are musical instruments from Puerto Rico a very old version of the cuatro made, I think like in the early 1900s and a more contemporary version of the cuatro that was made by a New Yorkian instrument maker who actually, his name was Efraim Vega. He was an employee at the Met. He worked in the plastic shop in the plexi shop, making vitrines for museum displays and exhibitions. And in his spare time, also made instruments, musical instruments. A few of the, of the guys in the shop apparently made instruments and had other hobbies. And his were so good that they really impressed some of the curators when they found out about them. And they ended up acquiring a couple of his instruments in the 90s. And, and one of them is on view. And so the, the electric cuatro, this black and red kind of plexi-faced cuatro is on view. And that's like the sole object made by a contemporary artist or craftsman in the museum today. And it's got an, another kind of fascinating history in that it was made in the bowels of the museum by a Puerto Rican artist and an employee of the museum, really, uh, at that time. It's it's not a well-known history. And so then I started to try to unpack then at least these points of entry at the museum to see what I could do with the few works that are in the collection, right? From pre- pre-Columbian work to even some of the musical instruments. Yeah, that's fascinating. I think it makes me question what are, what were the motivations of the curators when they saw that? Yeah, there's I mean, there's a there's a bigger history because there was a there was a musical program about the cuatro that happened during those years in the 90s. There was also the Puerto Rican Day Parade. So the Puerto Rican Day Parade is on Fifth Avenue, right? And it stops kind of like where the Met begins, you know, it usually comes up Fifth Avenue and stops around like 81st or something like that. They kind of it turns off. But there was a time when some of the floats and things would still be, you know, in that area of the city on Fifth Avenue. And somewhere in that history, there was this huge float with like a 20 foot long replica of a cuatro. A cuatro is, you know, like a folk instrument, kind of a small guitar that um, a small string instrument that is our national instrument in Puerto Rico. It's very nostalgic and widely celebrated in our folk music. And there are a few cuatros in the collection that uh, got into the collection in the 90s made by expert cuatro makers from the island. And a replica of one of those was made into this kind of this 20 foot long version on a float for Rosa del Monte, which is a you know, company that does shipping back and forth to the Caribbean. And so it's during that time also that you know, Efraín Vega is making the cuatro uh, in in the museum. And so, the, and there's this awareness, I think, of some of this that's going on amongst the curators. So it happens during that time. And there was like a, this musical program called Cuatrissimo or something, I think it was called in the 90s that was a celebration of Puerto Rican music there. So there, there was this moment through musical instruments that our culture gets uh, celebrated and represented in that era. I think instrument is kind of like evidence of those connections in that history. And when I spoke to James previously, um, he had also mentioned the Art Heritage of Puerto Rico and the exhibit that followed in 1985 at the Met, um, solely on Dominican art. And so I think hearing you kind of add to that story about not necessarily a lot happening at the Met, but there are things happening around it and outside of it. And I think as you're kind of pointing out, like 
between those two major exhibitions and the recent one of Arte de Mar, in your opinion, as someone who's kind of coming in and, and has kind of been working adjacent to it, I think what what is still missing or needed to be explored? And I think as an artist, like what were the responsibilities that you felt it needed to be highlighted? You know, I had the the good fortune of, in, in terms of the timing of like having a residency during a time when there was a Taino show in the works, right? You know, the first Taino show there in like a generation. And so I met, James was one of the, James Doyle was one of the first curators that I met in the residency. And I reached out to him and his department really early on because that one vitrine, and it's a small vitrine that hosted Taino objects in the galleries of ancient Americas. And that's, and that's a representation of the Tainos. The most striking object in that vitrine was the semi Cohoba stand, right? It's this incredibly detailed wooden sculpture that's probably one of the most important sculptures made in wood uh, that survives in the world in terms of Taino sculpture. And it's been a touchstone like for Caribbean folks for years, you know, who will be in those galleries and seek out that, <laughs> that small space of representation. So when I found out they were doing a Taino show, it was, it was exciting, you know, that the, the vitrine would get at least, you know, a gallery in this pop-up space and it's literally a space that's at the crossroads between the art of africa and the art of ancient america i had approached james about you know seeing the collection and got to see you know a lot of the work behind the scenes which was amazing um he was super supportive in terms of the research i um was also learning about kind of the resources at the institution in terms of like what might be possible to see objects to have objects photographed and scanned uh, digitally? Is it possible to create a replica object of something, you know? And so they, they have an imaging department at the Met that does all of that work. I, I had this idea of making a replica of some of the Taino objects and wanted to sort of explore that possibility. And really from the beginning, for me, the idea was, you know, is it possible to make a 3D replica that could symbolically be removed from the museum and kind of reclaimed as an object and reintroduced in another context, in a community context, right? In a way that could be, you know, more accessible to our communities outside of the museum, et cetera. And so that proposal like turned into a real project. And it, it just so happened that, you know, this exhibition was happening, Arte del Mar, the work was going to be installed. So we were able to scan the semi Cohoba stand and went through the process of getting this really high quality digital scan and having replicas made. It, it took a while to happen, but for the first year of my residency, I was exploring all the technical aspects of that project, you know, and finally arriving at this 3D replica that was robotically carved and milled and, and then cast in other materials. And I was lucky to be working with a curator who was super like supportive of this idea. I was worried that they would be kind of protective of these things in a way that, um, and there was some of that energy in terms of, you know, keeping these objects in a museum context. And I, you know, was interested in how we might reinterpret these heritage objects that, you know, really belong to all of us in terms of our, our culture, our history, and our heritage, if I could make a replica, it could introduce this other, the possibility of another experience, right? Where we see and get close to the work outside of a mu museum context, outside of the kind of colonial framework of a museum, and can experience the work on our own terms. And what would that be like? You know, how can we actually learn about these heritage objects up close, you know, 
and build our own relationships with them and with the expertise of our own community coming forward and things like that. So yeah, that was sort of the experiment. And what was that process like replicating it? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. So, I mean, the technical part of it was that, you know, it was scanned and then the scan gets either printed or milled through another fabricator. It was carved in a material that would give us kind of the maximum resolution or maximum quality to have as close to the original detail as possible. Right. And so I made castings later from that because I was interested in people being able to touch the object and get close to it. And so made castings in resin and plaster and fiberglass. And I also wanted to sort of experiment with reimagining this object, right? Interpreting it, you know, you know, parts of it are broken off, parts of it were removed at some point. And so we have to use our imagination a little bit to imagine what might've been, you know, in the space of the eyes, you know, or in the ears as material, right? I was interested in sort of, sort of fixing the broken pieces and also reimagining the other connections and interpreting it, you know, through my own practice, right? As a contemporary object also. So what's the relationship between this history and, and our culture today. And I often do that in my own work is like, you know, incorporate um, historic objects and artifacts in a way that can reimagine them in a contemporary context through the lens of popular culture and history and social justice. And what I arrived at in the end as a, a solution in terms of creating a work that could be publicly exhibited and experienced was I made a bronze uh, replica. And the bronze was um, the closest to the original in terms of surface, in terms of the patina and the color of the object, and also really durable. So, you, you know, people could touch it. People could get close to it if they wanted to and engage with it without a vitrine around it, you know, and without the danger of it being damaged. And so that's what I actually ended up producing and exhibiting in this uh, pop-up space at the end of my residency last summer. We had this uh, pop-up exhibition in a storefront gallery in East Harlem. And, and, and the project was called Semi Libre. And so the, the whole project sort of a play on words because the word Semi is, you know, the name in Spanish. Well, it's an indigenous word that gets kind of spelled in Spanish sometimes, but it's Semi is the word for an ancestral spirit. There are many Semis, you know, that have different names and different sort of identities. So Semi Libre was also a play on the idea of like being semi libre, right? Semi free. All of that in reference to the semi being sort of liberated symbolically from the vitrine, from the museum and returned to a community context for the first time in the diaspora, right here in El Barrio. And so that was the first presentation. And it's also kind of a reference to Puerto Rico and our politics, you know, in terms of the island and the question of freedom and sovereignty and semi libre is also kind of a uh, metaphor for the paradox of our political status. And you've also created protest shields and you were looking at the armor section at the Met and, and the various shields that you described as pageantries of power. Can you also talk about that research as well? Sure. So in the in the exhibition, it, it, so I'm fast forwarding. This is kind of like the culminating event of my residency was this pop-up exhibition in East Harlem on 104th Street. And I showed a few different projects that happened during the residency were produced independently and sometimes also with the support of the Met. I was originally looking at them and started working on them in 2019 during the summer of, of protests in Puerto Rico. And there was a, a huge 
public uprising in protest of the governor of Puerto Rico, Ricky Rosselló. The, the movement really was for was to oust the governor who was corrupt and had offended the entire island. And this is all in response to the the treatment of the people in the island after the hurricane and during a debt crisis where people, I mean, we're just struggling, you know, incredibly struggling. And so the debt crisis has been an ongoing problem that was exacerbated by Hurricane Maria. The impact of the debt crisis is felt most heavily that the heaviest burden falls on the poorest Puerto Ricans. And so the priority is to pay back these uh, U.S. Uh, bondholders and, and, and banks and, and people who own this debt. Meanwhile, they're instituting major austerity programs like hardcore austerity programs that have led to massive school closures, like hundreds of public schools being closed. Other uh, social services, public service programs, hospitals, you name it, are being closed to try to reduce the debt. Schools are a big, 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 big problem, obviously. And so the future of education is at stake for the next generation. Anyway, during that time, I, I was I was back and forth to Puerto Rico quite a lot and had like noticed these abandoned school buses in several places and met one of the uh, operators of a local school bus company who had talked to me about the impact of the school closures and the debt crisis on his business. And there were like these uh, school bus graveyards, you know, that were just kind of out of commission buses that were not worth servicing in some cases because they didn't have the work. He uh, allowed me to use some of the material from the buses and we, we stripped a few of them down and used the the metal from decommissioned school buses and turned them into protest shields that were symbolically designed really to support the protesters who were, you know, fighting to protect public education on the island, among other things. Yeah, all of that happened between 2019 and 2020. And the work was finished in 2020 and, and also influenced by the uprisings and the protests here in the United States during Black Lives Matter and after, after the murder of George Floyd and everything that happened in 2020, the, that work was produced really in response to both of those things. I spent a lot of time looking at the Arms and Armors collection, you know, rethinking what arms and armor and protection mean, not for the, the nobles, but, you know, but for the people, right? So that's what the shields were about, you know. So they were in the show and so were images from public art project about the Young Lords that had happened in uh, between 2018 and 2019. That was a large public art project about the history of the Young Lords Party here in El Barrio in New York. I had the honor of collaborating with Iram Marestani, who was the official photographer of the Young Lords and one of the founding members of the New York chapter. Also, you know, one of the most important photographers in, in our community. We, we recently lost Idam. He just passed away a couple of months ago, and it's a tremendous loss for our community. But he was a very dear friend for many years and a neighbor and a collaborator. And that project was such um, an honor to work on. And we, we we took 10 of Iram's photographs of um, activist moments of the Young Lords, and we enlarged them into billboard size images that were installed at the same location that they were taken at, that the photos were taken at 50 years prior. And so it was called Mapping Resistance, the Young Lords in El Barrio. And with these 10 images, we sort of mapped out part of the history of the Young Lords in East Harlem. And we did these walking tours that reactivated those histories through the voices of some of the people that helped shape it, like Iram and other members of the Young Lords. And we also worked with different high schools and local educators. And Museo del Barrio was also a partner, you know, in their education program, did tours. And, and I, I did all this while I was still in residence at the Met. So brought the Met into the project as well. And so some of the banners or the um, 
the enlargements we we also showed in this gallery as part of the project and in and in the eventual celebration of this exhibition at the end, which became like this block party celebration. So, but the star within this whole exhibition was, was the bronze semi. And we made a, an altar-like pedestal for the semi. It had its own wall and its own space. And it really was the feature of the exhibition. And sometimes people brought offerings and different things. You know, we had fresh flowers every day that were at the altar. We had fruits and other things that were actually from Puerto Rico and from the islands that were imported. Everything about sort of receiving the semi and in Barrio was also about kind of honoring its presence with other connections to the Caribbean and to El Barrio at the same time. In James' interview, he spoke about the recent changes and emphasis on research and scholarship surrounding indigenous history and culture that the Taino were believed to have been extinct. But in fact, there's evidence of genetic research, cuisines and linguistics that say otherwise. And your project is a really good example of realizing that research. And by welcoming the Zemi statue to New York City and witnessing the, that celebration, I think you described it as welcoming. Can you can you speak to that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, the the idea was that we would have uh, two events, really. There was the exhibition and the block party. So at the end of my residency, you know, I wanted to use the remaining resources to really celebrate in the space of community. Right. I had always wanted to do that, but it was during COVID. So, you know, my residency was del delayed and extended. I was sort of holding out for the opportunity to have a public event. And at the end of last summer, the city finally allowed for uh, permits for block parties. So we got the permit and produced a block party. And it was beautiful. It was amazing. And it was the first block party in like two years on 104th Street in East Harlem, which is a, you know, a street that has regular functions and events like block parties. And so it was a really special event. And the idea was to introduce the semi through that event and welcome the semi to El Barrio. So um, I reached out to some people in the, in the Taino community here in New York and outside of New York, too. And so we invited Miguel Saguey, who is a Mexique, he's uh, like a shaman, he's a Taino elder who's part of a spiritual group, the Cane Indigenous Spiritual Circle. He came to New York from Pittsburgh. He helped us welcome the semi through a, a sort of bienvenidos, no? And uh, they created an altar in the street. He and uh, some of his colleagues came together and, and did a very, very special sort of invocation and and, and welcoming of the semi and, and sort of uh, gave a blessing to the street and to the, the public. And it was a way of kind of welcoming the ancestors into the space. And that's, you know, was important to me that I wanted the event to be grounded in a kind of welcoming of the ancestors and to reach out to folks that could actually ground it in the traditions of uh, Taino spirituality. So it, it was a really special way to open the event when there were songs and there, there, there were eventually, you know, was music and dancing and, and a whole celebration after the kind of ceremony with the semi in the street. We returned the semi to the altar in the gallery. And then we opened the program with legacy women who are an amazing musical group of women that play Afro-Caribbean music. And it's the music from the Dominican Republic, from Haiti, from Puerto Rico, Cuba. So we also grounded the event in the music of our African ancestry in the Caribbean. So welcoming again, our ancestors into the space. Taino, African, and that also kind of set the tone for, for the rest of the day. Uh, it was it was beautiful. It was really really beautiful. From Legacy Women uh, came Quinto Sono, a Bomba en Plena group from here from New York, 
that was amazing. And finally, uh, at the end of the program, we had Fabiola Mendez perform uh, on Cuatro. And, and there's where the connection to the Cuatro as the real, really like the sole object on view at the museum made by a Puerto Rican artist got activated, right? And so Fabiola sort of brought us home with the Cuatro, with the sounds of the islands. We had, you know, a, an incredible day. People were dancing in the street. We had a lechon for about 100 people that ate. The Puerto Rico Schwinn Clubs came, classic writers from Brooklyn. It, it was just, it was a big celebration. We had a great time. It was a great way to end the residency in the space of community. Yeah, that's incredibly powerful. And I think a lot of scholarship on decolonization, we're advocating for community museums. And someone that I'm personally look at in my research is Lamy Lontree, uh, who writes extensively that indigenous collections should have the voices of those communities incorporated in educational material, wall text, in the exhibitions, and even incorporating knowledge practices to classification systems. And what I appreciate about your project and your work is, as a whole is that it encouraged people to learn and ask questions about their culture and histories that have been largely ignored or kind of left to forget in this project. How were you thinking about cultural loss and absent knowledge of Taino history? I mean, so, so one of my frustrations has always been that, you know, any, any access to information about even the objects that do exist in the collections is, is so limited. There are these outdated you know, sort of placards with, with very generic information oftentimes about the object, about its history, et cetera. So there, there are so many gaps, you know. Arte del Mar exhibition, you know, I thought did a, a, a really great job in terms of like introducing a broader context for Taino history, right? That was not solely the Caribbean even, right? But that actually spanned into Central and South America. And, and it was really about the, that whole region, you know? So it, it opened up all these connections uh, of, of artistic exchange, of cultural exchange that I think encouraged people to think more flexibly about you know, history and heritage. And so that was encouraging, but you know, this was kind of also kind of like a, a blip on the screen. Just, it was a temporary exhibition. It was the last exhibition also before that whole wing closed down. So it's gonna be interesting to see what they do in the wing afterwards. So we'll see, you know, for me, the, the opportunity here was, I'm not, I'm not an expert on, on, on any of this. So as an artist, I was interested in how uh, making the replica object was sort of an act of resistance in itself, right? It was a way of challenging the museum as a colonial framework or a colonial context, right? And, and kind of resetting the terms of engagement, you know, uh, on our own terms, right? Uh, as a community, the work, uh, as a heritage object accessible so that we can actually build our own relationship with it, you know, imagine our own connections, create our own connections. So people who came through the exhibition, some people identified as Taino, right? And have deep uh, knowledge and history and awareness, you know, of their, of their identity and history in, in that sense. And others, you know, who, who shared Taino heritage, but maybe didn't know anything about it. Right. And, and it was a space that really welcomed everybody to engage and understand uh, something more, than they might have originally. And, and even for people who are experts, like nobody's can ever get close to these objects. You know what I mean? Like we're, we're just, we're not allowed to, they're always behind glass, et cetera. So, you know, part of the idea was, it was about an educational opportunity also for our own community. And, and for myself, I mean, throughout, this is, 
this for me was an extraordinary way just to learn more about this semi Kohobastan, right? And to try to understand its history, to understand its energy, honestly. And I've had the privilege of living around, you know, these objects now for several months and they're powerful work to be around. So it's, it was quite a privilege to do all of this work. And I'm still thinking about what it means and where the next sort of iteration of this project will happen. Did you see the Christie's video of them auctioning Taino art? I think it was I, I didn't. I didn't see the video, but I'm aware of like of the event. Yeah, I mean, just relying on the same rhetoric that Taino are completely destroyed. There's, you know, no reason to not claim these works or sell them at auction. As you can imagine, there's a lot of social media backlash and. Yeah, huge backlash publicly, but it didn't stop them from selling those objects, right? No. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What a mess. And what a, you know, what a shame. It's like, that's the, that's like the, the marketplace for these things. You know, it's like, it, it's, it's really, it's really sad part of the history that also influences these institutional collections. And while I think institutions are trying to think more critically about their own collections, the, the provenance of these objects and their acquisition histories and all this stuff, it's still, they still have collections that are full of objects that came in through these kinds of, you know, marketplace exchanges all over the world. So they're, they're incredibly problematic histories. And I think that's also important to talk about. You know, in the case of the SME, the Cohobistan, for example, it's, it's not identified with Puerto Rico as an object. You know, it's identified with the Dominican Republic or Haiti, but we don't really know for sure. There's a lot that we don't know. We don't know where it came from uh, exactly because it, it was never documented, at least not the records that are available. Um, it has a very strange kind of acquisition history that goes back about a hundred years to an estate sale in Ireland. It was bought by a, a British uh, collector. And then it goes from there into the Rockefeller collection in uh, maybe in the fifties. Um, but it was acquired originally like in the thirties. Prior to that, who, there isn't any documentation on the object, you know, it's a thousand years old. So how it, you know, it got to Ireland, who knows? But so many of the objects have even more obscure histories than that. Uh, that, that. That for me also makes them kind of wide open to interpretation, you know what I mean? Because no matter where you're from, in the Caribbean, you share a history and heritage that does connect to this work. And that for me is also important to sort of recognize. And again, to think more sort of flexibly and more openly about inviting all of us in. So what I, one of the things I loved about the exhibition that James produced was that pop-up space, as I mentioned before, was really at this crossroads section between the art of Africa and, and the art of ancient America. And so at the very back of the exhibition, he included a painting by Berfredo Lam that was kind of a bridge between these two spaces uh, that incorporated both African and indigenous symbol systems in that space. And I had always sort of wanted to see something like that happen at the Met, you know, because if you're from the Caribbean and you walk into those galleries from that same kind of like central hall, the Caribbean is in this one vitrine, right? But really our history is right there in the middle of both of those spaces, right? And so where these spaces merge and connect with one another has not really been explored very much at the institution anyways. That for me also, you know, presented really exciting possibilities, you know, because so much of what we understand and, and actually know of our Taino heritage survives through the African presence on the island. And so we have to sort of look at those connections and understand the interconnectedness between our African and indigenous history, I think, to fully understand anything about ourselves as Caribbean people. And so 
and they're they're often separated out in ways that I think should be uh, connected together more often. So um, I'm, I'm really interested in sort of like those possibilities. And um, that was some of the work that didn't get fully explored in, in the residency, but um, hopefully we'll continue in another way. Yeah. And I think you kind of are doing that because I've noticed on the Met social media, and I didn't know that it was directly connected to you, the promotion of t-shirts, totes, and mugs and caps to fund acquisitions of Latinx art. And that was an initiative you started by wearing Element t-shirts and promoting the fund kind of without permission. Um, so can you speak more about the Element merchandise? Uh, where did this idea come from? And do you, know, do you have a role in selecting the acquisition works? Yeah, thanks for asking that question. So that was the very last project before I finished my residency um, was this merchandise project that was really kind of a provocation in the beginning. I took the Mets logo and just um, flipped it with the same kind of script, flipped it from the Met to El Met. I made a series of T-shirts and I made some postcards and things and started giving them out to educators, gave it to uh, the then director of education to Sandra Jackson Dumont. And uh, I was trying to promote this idea of Puerto Rican and Latinx art fund at the museum <laughs> that if they would carry these t-shirts, right, that we could use the project as a catalyst to start this new acquisition fund. And so at every public talk that I would do, I always would always wear those shirts and tried to sort of like prompt other educators and, and, and folks to talk about it. It took about a year or two before this actually kind of caught on. There were a series of events, you know, we had the pandemic, we had the, the summer of, of protests in, in, in 2020 that I think, you know, kind of galvanized uh, some areas of the museum into a more conscious space. And we saw this happen, you know, uh, you know, all over the city, all over the country where museums often very awkwardly were responding to the calls of social justice. And in the calls of, you know, of, of decolonization and of confronting their, their own colonial histories. There was a new person that came on in merchandising at that time, and they loved this project. And so it finally became a real thing. So we partnered together on it and actually created like a, a larger line. So it started just with T-shirts. And the whole pitch was that anything with this logo, with the El Met logo, will, will be sold as merchandise that will only support this new fund for Latinx art. That's been the agreement and so far started to actually generate funding. But between June and December, the project generated over $50,000 in, in revenue. Super exciting. You know, I'm not sure exactly where we're at right now, but I'm going to check in pretty soon because we're going to reach the one year mark. And the goal for me was to try to see how much money we can generate within the first year and then challenge the museum to match those funds and really, you know, use this project as a way to leverage more support from more significant sources to get the Met to really invest in this as a project. So that means like getting their curators on board, getting other people invested in this project, um, trustees and other donors to really, you know, donate significant funding. The idea was really never just to rely on t-shirts alone to, to raise this money because that would be offensive. I mean, I would be offended if that was the only thing they were relying on, but this has all been kind of an experiment. In the end, we'll see if it, you know, what it turns into. The, the goal really is to bring, you know, more Puerto Rican, more Latinx art like into the Met. It's a really underrepresented constituency at the Met. Like we, we have very, very little work in that collection and even less on view. So we'll see where it goes. You know, it's kind of, it's all a work in progress. And, you know, my hope is that I'll be invited to these conversations about acquisitions when we 
have amassed, you know, some significant funding to make those uh, things happen. We're, we'll probably make an announcement about it soon, but it's exciting. And again, I was kind of like a last gesture before leaving. And part of the idea is also that, you know, you can you can buy a shirt knowing that your money is going to support this specific initiative. You know, all the merchandise is tagged, explaining the initiative. You know, some people just it, think it's a cool shirt because it says, you know, El Met in Spanish or Spanglish and, and people identify with it in that way. But for me, it was always about like uh, remixing the logo to really challenge the institution to see themselves through our lens, right? Our language and our lens and to sort of reimagine, you know, what the institution can be like, right? When we have a bigger stake in that space. It was really a response to my whole experience in the residency with, you know, understanding very, very quickly how underrepresented that we are at the institution. Yeah, it was a gesture to help remedy some of that I'm excited and I definitely am looking forward to seeing the results of, of that initiative. I'm yeah, kidding. me too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think you've been widely successful in your career and continue to advocate for greater representation of Latinx art um, in museums. And so, well, not just art, but artists as well. Now you're working at two prestigious schools, SVA and, and Yale. Um, so what advice would you give for future artists and museum professionals seeking ethical change within the museum? Well, um, that's a great question. I mean, it, my experience in, you know, these institutions also where I teach is, is often similar. It's about, you know, trying to you know, advocate for uh, more diversity, for greater representation. It's the same struggle, you know, everywhere. Part of it is also sort of encouraging artists and encouraging, you know, curators, educators to really invest in, in our culture also, right? And, and in our artwork and to, you know, embrace our identities. I think to challenge sort of like what has been such a Eurocentric sort of historical space, right? Whether it's the the art museum space or institutions of higher education, you know, to really challenge those spaces, to think in more complex ways, right? About the world, about who we are. And we need to also have the space to speak for ourselves rather than having others speak for us. Um, and that's part of the history that's gone wrong so often, right? Um, I'm excited about how some of these places are changing, you know, and a, a, a new generation of young writers and curators and researchers that are going to be entering into these spaces that already are, you know, and really transforming them. If the museums in this city represented the diversity of our overall population, they would be extremely diverse, you know, and we're just not there yet. But I think that's, you know, part of the goal is to, you know, think about how institutions better reflect the communities that they serve and to understand that we have a stake in this and, you know, also, you know, can create our own kind of agency, you know. So I think we're in an exciting place because there are so many incredible Latinx artists, so many incredible Latinx researchers, curators, writers that are all coming of age at a really important time. And but it's all a work in progress, right? We keep pushing the generation before us pushed us. We're pushing the next generation. And that's kind of our charge, you know, just keep working. <laughs> yeah, There's a lot of work it. to do still. Yeah, it's it's sort of daunting, but I appreciate making the effort to finding those people and building that for community. Uh, well, do you have any final thoughts or announcements that you want to make in the upcoming projects that you're working on? Um, I would say in terms of uh, upcoming projects, there's an exciting exhibition at the Whitney Museum in the fall. Uh, November 23rd will be the opening of uh, No Existe Mundo 
post-Huracan. Uh, it's, it's art in the wake of Hurricane Maria. It's an exhibition of contemporary Puerto Rican art at the Whitney for the very first time. And it's going to be a really exciting show. So I'm really honored to have work in that show. And the shield that I mentioned, the protest shields, will be actually on view uh, in that exhibition. So that's a really exciting opportunity. And again, like the first exhibition of Puerto Rican art at the Whitney Museum of American Art. So <laughs> it's um, we're still in that space of you know creating these firsts. Marcela Guerrero is the curator. Uh, she's been wonderful. Excited also about the work she's doing at that institution. I'm uh, excited. I I will be there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Please, please do. It's gonna be it's gonna be great. Incredible artists from the island and the diaspora in that exhibition together. So it's gonna it's a really exciting opportunity. I have been your host, Soy Elena. Join us on our next episode. And in the meantime, be sure to follow us on social media to learn about opportunities, events, and more.